0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Undercovers. A pioneering journalist in an exclusive boys club, Lisa Robinson is a preeminent authority on the personalities and influences that have shaped the music world. She has long been recognized as rock journalism's ultimate insider. In her astounding career, she has interviewed the biggest names in music, Led Zeppelin, the Rolling Stones, John Lennon, Patti Smith, U2, Eminem, Lady Gaga, Kanye West, and hundreds of others. In her new book, There Goes Gravity, a lot. Life in Rock and Roll, she documents this lifetime of riveting stories all told together for the first time. It's a keenly observed and lovingly recounted look back on years spent with countless musicians backstage, after hours, and on the road. In my recent conversation with Lisa Robinson about her new book, There Goes Gravity, I first asked her to recall her time meeting the Stooges right here in Ann Arbor. I visited the
1: Stooges house in Ann Arbor. I I think in 1959, Danny Fields brought me, it was probably the first time I'd ever really been around a band um, in their house, which was a pigsty, and uh, (laughs) pretty alarming, actually, but they were such a great band. Did I love the Stooges. I love those first two albums so much.
0: When did you first see Iggy Pop perform? Was it with the Stooges or when he went solo? Oh, no,
1: no, no. It was with the Stooges. And I think it was, oh, God, at a club in New York City called Ongano's in the West 70s and it was in the early 70s it must have been 1971 maybe and he crawled along the floor and he crawled along the ceiling kind of ledge it was very it was extraordinarily theatrical you know that Fabulous photo of Iggy dancing on people's hands, and I I don't remember where it was. It might have even been in Ann Arbor. I saw them play a lot. I saw the Stooges play a lot in the early days. John Cale produced one of the first two albums. I loved, you know, No Fun, I Want to Be Your Dog, TVI, all those great, great songs. That was, you know, that. And the New York Dolls, those are the first two great
0: punk rock bands. Mm, you, you're right, and this is quite a quote for us here in Michigan. Without the Stooges and the MC5, no Ramones, no Clash. Without Ramones and the Clash, no U2. So Detroit and Ann Arbor bands, MC5 and the Stooges, are hugely important to you.
1: Without question, first of all, let's put it this way: what I really meant to say was, without the stages and the MC5, there would be no Ramones, no crash. Without the Clash, there would be no YouTube, for better or for worse. <laughs> However, what I really wanted to say is, I thought it was outrageous outrageous that the Clash got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame before the Stooges got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, and I don't even think the MC5 is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet, are they? They're not. Nor are the New York Dolls, and I think that's criminal, frankly. I mean, I left the nominating committee a long time ago because I was so furious that these bands were not in and Patti Smith was not in and you know, it's weird because I've been around for so long and I've seen so much and this book was important to me to put this all together so that people would know where this stuff really started and you know, sometimes I feel like that character in the George Orwell book 1984 who remembers the real food, it's like I'm the one who remembers the real food
0: <laughs> so, so, so well put one, one more quick question about uh, Iggy you introduced David Bowie to Iggy Pop into lou reed and david bowie i mean is it too much to say he basically saved iggy pop's life iggy pop was in a really bad way in the nineteen seventies especially after the stooges broke up i mean it's just so one of so many contacts that you made for people do you you remember that occasion very well i
1: wrote about it a lot in the book right um so many people wrote about david and lou and iggy meeting each other who weren't even there So that it was important for me to write about this in the book because it was a dinner that I arranged with my husband and I write about it in some detail and then I think we went to Max's afterwards and met up with Iggy who had been staying at Danny Fields' house and you know the thing is that nobody remembers these things the same way everybody remembers stuff differently but I was not stoned at the time and I took copious notes and I very much remember all of that of course and then I do remember when David and Iggy were working together, and (laughs) as uh, I think either Iggy or David, one of them said to me, well, and then we went to uh, Berlin to clean up, and of course, that was the heroin capital of the world, but they made some of their greatest records there. I mean, you know, Rust for Life, Iggy's record is amazing. My husband, Richard Robinson, mastered it, and I remember at the time hearing it, that and The Idiot, and... Bowie's low, and, you know, those are those great records. And I remember Iggy telling me, and this is also in the book, that David Bowie, more than just helping him with his career, he was a friend. And he said, you know, people underestimate the value of friendship in these situations. And um, when mm-hmm. Iggy got inducted, when the Stooges got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I remember standing there with Eddie Vedder jumping up and down. When he was playing, I want to be your dog. It's like, this just, the excitement of some of that stuff, it just never left me. I still love it.
0: Talk about your trip to Detroit to interview Eminem. I, having done, written a bit over the years and been on the radio for many years, there, there are certain <laughs> artists who, uh, as excited as I may be to talk to them, I'm a, a nervous wreck. I've never had the chance of talking to or meeting Eminem. If I ever did, I would be a nervous wreck. What was your experience like driving to Detroit and, and meeting him? Do you do you get intimidated or nervous
1: ever talking to anyone, Lisa? <laughs> Actually, never have been intimidated talking to anybody and I think I attribute that to the fact that I wasn't a critic so I wasn't like reviewing anyone's albums or music so I didn't come with that kind of chip on my shoulder and they weren't mad ever at me because I wrote a bad review so I always was very chatty and very pleasant and you know when I met Mick Jagger the first thing I did was comment on how tacky his shoes were you have to understand also coming from New York And having snuck out of my house at the age of 12 to go see jazz musicians, I really felt I was a pretty sophisticated girl. And so when I met these guys, a lot of us were the same age, and I just wasn't intimidated by them. And also, Eminem is a different situation, because I met Eminem under incredibly great circumstances. I had been at Vanity Fair. We were doing music issues. I did a music issue cover with Annie Leibovitz that had 12 people on the cover, and Dr. Dre was one of them. So Dr. Dre and I became friends. And so when I first met m&m it was at a grammy party and i write about this a lot in my book i mean listen i named the book after a line in an m&m song you know there goes gravity lose yourself Uh so that's one of my favorite songs and so when i met m&m it was with dr dre and dr dre introduced me to m and he said marshall this is lisa robinson she's my girl so that was kind of the seal of approval, and for Dre to introduce me to him that way, you know, he still had that kind of deadpan, monosyllabic persona that you could be intimidated by, but I just crashed right through it, and then we also got really friendly with Proof, who was Eminem's best friend, and there's a lot about that in the book also, and, um, you know, as you know, because you said obviously you read it, so uh, because I was friendly with Proof, that gave me another kind of thing with Eminem, and then I got friendly with his manager, Paul Rosenberg, because we're huge fans of uh, Tom Izzo and Michigan State (laughs) basketball, and so we share a big interest in that, and it just helped me, so when I finally came to Detroit to do a very major piece on Eminem for Vanity Fair, which is and there's a lot more about it in the book, I was really comfortable with him. We sat and talked for hours in the studio. He was great. He was very forthcoming. He was great. I, I just love that. And also, Detroit is such an important city. I mean, come on, Motown, Aretha Franklin, the yeah. Spider in the Detroit Wheels, the MC5, the Stooges, everything. It's just always been a very, very important special, mm. special music city.
0: Yeah, yeah. Go go back just for a quick moment, back to those early days of sneaking into clubs in New York to see oh, one, of, one of my all-time musical heroes of any genre, Thelonious Monk. Do you, yeah. still, do you still have good memories of seeing him? In I really
1: do. I, I'm telling you, I must have looked ridiculous. Because I was wearing high heels and makeup and had my hair piled on top of my head, and you were and I was in your way teens. underage, <laughs> but I got in and nobody said anything, and I just sat by myself at a table, and he was like three feet away from me, grunting and playing in that fantastic style he had, and it was it was pretty thrilling, it really was, and it's funny because when I met Barry Gordy, and this is also in my book, um, we wanted to do an oral history of town for Vanity Fair, and you really had to kind of pass the test with Barry Gordy. You had to kind of press him and convince him that you knew what you were talking about. And so I mentioned jazz and Thelonious Monk, because he was talking to me about growing up in Detroit and going to clubs and meeting Billie Holiday, and so I said, well, I love Thelonious Monk, and he said, well, name two Thelonious Monk songs other than Round Midnight. So I went um uh Crepescule with Mary and um I think I said Mysterioso, maybe. Well, maybe I, I don't know, maybe I said, I, I said something that impressed him, that he knew I knew what I was talking about. He said, okay, I'll do an interview
0: with you. <laughs> you, you passed the test with, I with, did. with Barry Gordy. Yeah. I'm just so impressed by how open minded you are, Lisa. You, you're as interested in and write as passionately and authoritatively uh, about the Stones as you do about Eminem or Lady Gaga or the, or the punk scene in the, in the 1970s. Where, where does that open mindedness come from? Were your parents like yeah, just a, a lot of people. As much as they love the arts or love music, they'll 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 get to a certain point and say, "Oh, rap no country no, oh no, punk well, rock no."
1: Mm, where, where I grew s- up in a very sort of left-wing, Upper West Side, Manhattan, liberal, you know, kind of household where I was. Uh, My parents listened to classical music But we also listened to Woody Guthrie And Alan Lomax's Sound of the South And Lead Belly So I did have a kind of liberal music background and education, but also, I mean, I was lucky enough to be in New York at a time where I could go and see those black-and-white 1950s movies. As a kid, I'd sneak into the teenage section and see those Alan Freed movies or go to the Brooklyn Fox and see Little Richard, and, I mean, come on, rap bap a lum a lop bam boom is one of the greatest lyrics ever in <laughs> black and all. kind of sums up a lot, I think, and um, to me, it's all interconnected, you know? it's like I can't be a snob about it. My friend Rick Rubin produced Johnny Cash, and I have scenes in the book where Joe Strummer sat on the floor and watched Rick producing Johnny Cash because Joe Strummer idolized Johnny Cash. And Annie Lubavitz and I photographed George Jones at his house in Nashville. And, you know, I went to some studios with Roseanne Cash and, Dwight Yolcom and Ryle Lovett and Emmy Lou Harris and I've interviewed Joni Mitchell many, many times and Lady Gaga, I see many things similar to Patti Smith in her. I know it might sound weird to people, but I try to connect all this stuff together in the book, and in the final chapter, I think I kind of bring it all back home with Bob Dylan and Highway 61 and blues musicians, and where the Stones and Zeppelin got their inspirations from, and there's a lot of ghosts, there's a lot of people who died, a lot of people who weave themselves in and out of this book, who are no longer with us, whether it's Duck Dunn from Stax or Hubert Sumlin and Top Perkins or Stephen Bruton from Austin who was close with T-Bone Burnett. or I, I mean, I don't know. There's just such a large, huge musical palette out there for people to learn about and enjoy. And I've just been lucky enough to know a lot of these people and to have it be part of my life was
0: it did you ever have uh, difficulties on the road in this mostly uh, male dominated world of music lisa was this a uh, at times a very difficult situation to put yourself in uh, being out on the road basically all of your life with for the most part a bunch of guys and a lot of them in the rock crazy hazy days and the rock and roll <laughs> world how did you deal with that
1: well i was one of the few women in this boys club you know who wasn't there sleep with them. Um, I mean, there were a lot of women who also had jobs in their organization, in their production office, and so forth. But I was one of the few early female journalists who was covering this world. I wouldn't say it was difficult, because I kind of just skipped it. I mean, you have to understand, we were coming out of the 60s and female liberation, and yet here I was, clearly, with a bunch of, I mean, nobody was more chauvinistic than Led Zeppelin, let's put it that way, but I didn't really consider it a problem because I wasn't really there for that, you know, and we established a rapport about the music so early on that I was treated with a tremendous amount of respect, and even somebody like John Bonham, who was considered a beast, by his own band when he got drunk and who was given to all sorts of violent uh, little scenes and things. He was a lovely, sweetheart, perfect gentleman with me, I swear. I know people find this hard to believe, but he opened car doors for me and lit my cigarettes, and, you know, he came to do an interview with me once wearing a suit. And mm. I write a lot about this in the book. The only thing I would say... Perhaps it was a little lonely sometimes being on the road by myself in that situation because I wasn't always hanging out with them after the shows. I was going when there was a party or when everybody went to a restaurant for a meal. But there were a lot of nights that I was alone in my hotel room, you know, calling the few people I knew who were still up in New York and, you know, there wasn't cable television then. There wasn't anything you could watch it for in the morning except a black-and-white pattern on the TV set. So that sometimes was something I do talk about in the book that was a little bit of an aspect of it. But for the most time, no, it just it, I managed to handle it.
0: How did you put this book together, and why was now the, the proper time to write this book, Lisa? What, 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 how much time did you spend assembling? It sounds like you're an incredible archivist in terms of your notes and your interviews you've done over the year, but why not do the book, and how long did it take to do it?
1: It took close to four years from the time I made the deal to the time the book is out because you have to understand I had a day job during that time I was still at Vanity Fair and I wrote cover stories on Beyonce, Jay-Z, uh, Katy Perry Jennifer Lopez Justin Bieber two on Lady Gaga I did a lot of music portfolios with Annie Leibovitz for the first six years I was there I wrote this big profile on YouTube one on Eminem I did an oral history of Motown an oral history of disco I wrote a very very big story on Serge Gainsbourg a French singer Oh yeah. Um, so you know it was like I had to kind of write it in my so called spare time so that's why it took so so long. Um, I decided to do it now because, I don't know, I have six storage spaces with 5,000 cassettes and trunks and trunks and trunks and photos and memorabilia and notes and papers and posters and T-shirts, and I just thought I'd better get some of this down, you know, before I really forget about it, and in terms of assembling it, it wasn't that difficult because I remembered a lot of it, I listened back to the tapes, which... Knock on wood, John Lennon. I'm telling you, it still sounds like he's in the room. These things have really lasted. Mm, mm,
0: mm, mm. Anybody still on your dream list of someone you've just never granted an interview with you, Lisa, that uh, you'd like to interview?
1: You know, the only person that I've never really interviewed extensively, I've talked to him and we've been around each other, and I've been to a party at his house, is Prince. You know, Prince doesn't let people record him, and Prince was always very adamant that he wouldn't do an interview with me at Vanity Fair unless he got the cover, and that wasn't my decision, and so we didn't do one, but, you know, he's somebody that I think is absolutely brilliant and genius talent, and I would have liked to have interviewed him. I never really interviewed Bob Dylan either, but... I know him, we've met, we've talked a little bit backstage. I never really wanted to, because I've just seen how he's jerked journalists around, and um, I don't want to be in that situation. But no, I honestly have to say, everybody whose music I loved, who I really wanted to interview, I have. I I think I could look forward to interviewing Adele at some point, maybe, because I think she's wonderful, wonderful, talented.
0: Great voice! Oh. oh, absolutely. I came of age really in the nineteen seventies, in the era of of punk, of the Sex Pistols, and Television, and Talking Heads, and all of these great New York bands. so you? Oh, you met and wrote about, and you hung at CBGBs. So who was your favorite in that in that whole scene? It sounded like you you liked a lot of those people. Was there one band or one artist who stood above all the others, Lisa?
1: Well, Patty, of course, was really special. Patty Smith did something that I'd never seen any girl do, certainly. So she embodied a tremendous amount of energy and real rock and roll kind of ballsy style that I just loved. But to me, television was such a special band, very underrated, very underappreciated. Tom Verlaine was a brilliant guitar player. Uh, They just went off sometimes and improvised and played for hours, and I made many, many tapes of them, and uh, much as a, a Grateful Dead fan would have followed the dead around, you know, that's how I felt about television. But I loved the Ramones, too, you know, they were they were great fun. I, I just loved the whole scene. It was just a place where we used to hang out every night for like two years. I think I, Richard and I probably lived most of 1974 in I went back and forth. I went to Studio 54, but then I would go to CBGB's Always.